West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me are my good friends, Mike and Brian. Mike, how are you today? Good, sir. I'm I'm doing good. I've been tired. I've been run ragged, but I had a day yesterday that I had blocked pretty much the whole day to do nothing. And I have not gotten one of those in a long time. So that's... Words that's cannot awesome. express how jealous I am of you right now. <laughs> I am committing the sin of envy right now that you had a day of a slotted scheduled day of nothing. Like, yeah, and it, I had to fight for it, too. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of people trying to pull on my time, but it's been it's been a lot lately. So in a ministerial family and when you are the the person who's working outside the church to support the ministry, it's hard to get time. So, yeah, it was it was a good thing to have a day of rest. Funny how God commanded that sort of thing. It turns out you really need it. <laughs> Sometimes, yes. And when he does say it, you better listen. I'll tell you, like, it, like I should really be talking about, you know, all of my problems on, you know, on the internet. But carving out a Sabbath rest is like the hardest spiritual discipline sometimes for a lot of reasons. But yeah, I'm glad that yesterday it came in the in the form of just nothing. Cool. Well, what about you, Brian? You doing good? Uh. Yeah, I got to admit I'm barely ready to go here. I uh, made the mistake of taking a nap right before we started, and I haven't quite recovered from You fool, you've doomed us all. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> See, this is why I don't nap. I I just, I can't. Because what'll happen is I'll say, oh, just take a 15-minute nap, or just take a half-hour nap. No, I do. I'm going to be down for three hours. That's a four hour, yeah. Yeah, and when I and I'm going to wake up feeling horrible, and then I'm not going to be able to fall asleep until like three a.m. that night. If I can keep mine down to twenty minutes, I generally do okay. Like twenty to thirty minutes, it'll actually do me some good. But once I I get to like an hour range, then I've I might wake up okay, but I have doomed getting a good night's sleep. Well, I didn't intend to take a nap. I was I had like. 40 minutes before we were going to start recording. It's like, that's not really enough time to like watch a TV show or do anything that I would like get involved in. So I was like, I'll read a, read a couple chapters in my book. And I got a few paragraphs in and was just out. <laughs> See, it's funny. I nearly strategized a map today because I, um, this Sunday was pretty wild. Um, I'm the associate minister, so sometimes it means that I'm the pinch hitter for, for preaching especially when senior pastor wakes up and says, I have an incapacitating migraine. I cannot mm-hmm. do this. Um, that, that's a legit I, reason. Oh, there is no question. That is absolutely legit. Um, and what you do not want is somebody with a migraine going to sitting in front of computer screens or with bright lights or loud noises and then throwing mm-hmm. up, which makes it worse, and then <laughs> wash, rinse, repeat. Like, totally advocate no no you you do your thing but um it turns out that though a lot of people might might say oh yeah i can totally extempo a sermon um a lot of people do it 
a lot fewer people do it well because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and it's it's one of those things where it was a Sunday where you can't just pull out an old sermon for a variety of reasons. And then leading the church's annual business meeting after the potluck. So I was pulling up a lot in terms of the pinch hitting. And I'm like, I, I need a nap. But some for some <laughs> reason decided that a cup of tea and a couple of white chocolate Reese's Easter eggs was was the solution instead. <laughs> yeah, because caffeine is always a, an adequate substitute for sleep. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> but in this case, it was the right choice, I think. <laughs> so, so let's turn the question right back around. How are you, James? I'm, I'm also tired. Um, it's been a long weekend, a long week, but I've had a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun. I'll, I'll get into that in my geek out in just a few minutes. But before we get to geek out, there's a major thing that we need to talk about. And, of course, I am referring to Endgame. And by Endgame, I mean the year 2000 movie Highlander Endgame. Oh, gosh. Because, <laughs> I mean, geez. not nearly enough has been said about uh, this movie. And uh, I disagree. <laughs> let's, a great tour de force from Christopher Lambert. Adrian Paul, not too bad either, but the others, they just kind of phone it in. And really, I think by the end of the movie, we wish that they actually had literally phoned it in. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, IMDb gives it 4.6 out of 10 stars. (laughs) It's got a 21 Metacritic score. But let's be honest. Let's look at the virtues of the movie. I think they're really giving this movie too much credit. (laughs) With a production budget of $25 million, it made a whopping $12 million in the box office. I don't see I don't see why they didn't make another one. Oh, oh wait. They they did, didn't they? Guys, I have a confession. 7 of those dollars were mine. <laughs> well, I I have to woefully admit that about $7 of those were mine also. Let's just make it a devil's 21 because yeah, mine too. Actually, Brian, actually, I think didn't you, we see that together? We did see it together. <laughs> we did. I'm wondering if we. Oh, can, yeah. I'm wondering if we can make a better show if we just go ahead and just rip the full audio from that and turn that into the to the background for a puppet show. I, an an MST three, our own MST three K of Highlander Endgame. <laughs> no, I think Highlander Endgame, the puppet show. I mean, I think we the can, puppet show. Can, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if we could just spring load the heads on those puppets so they come off at the appropriate moments, that would be best. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think we would do higher on Rotten Tomatoes than the original. <laughs> it brings a bit of wonder and whimsy that the source material just didn't have. This would be the only thing I say on it. We are <laughs> griping about it. We have every reason to. But there were a couple of moments that I really did enjoy the choreographed fight scenes. Uh, involving Adrian Paul. And I mean, honestly, actually, Endgame solid... wasn't the worst of it because yeah. the source, did you see that one? I saw exactly no. 30, 45 minutes of it, and that's really all I'm prepared to watch of it at this point. I wanted to burn down the theater after that movie. <laughs> oh, you saw it in the theater? <laughs> yes, I saw it oh, in the theater. Brian. Uh... All right. I feel like we should move on. Nothing else should be said. We should move on. <laughs> we have But six... hey, Spoiler-free review of Endgame there. There you go. (laughs) So I will kick off Geek Out this week. 
And um, the reason that my voice may be sounding a little odd today is because I spent all day yesterday outside at the Scarborough Renaissance Festival here in Texas. Good for you. It was a Good for you. fun time. We, of course, had kids along, and we had a friend's kid as well. They had asked us if we would watch her over the weekend, and she's a good friend of Michaela's. I'm like, sure, we'll take her, and we'll go to the Ren Fair. Because going to the Renaissance Fair isn't hard enough with three kids. I thought, let's add another one. <laughs> All things being said, though, it was fun. Not too hot. It only got up to 80, 81 degrees, a good amount of wind and cloud coverage. So that wasn't the hard part because, you know, if it had been like 90, forget about it. But it was a nice day. Spent way too much money than I should have, but that's Ren Fair. That's kind of par for the course. <laughs> rode camels, rode horses, donkeys, pet animals, saw shows, and had a lot of fun. Bought foam swords. Good oh, times yeah. there. And um, you gave the child back and said, hey, friend, me and the Rennies ruined your child. <laughs> they won't much. eat anything. <laughs> they won't eat any meat unless it's on a stick now. Mm-hmm. And and she's already uh, researching 15th century sideless surcoat patterns so don't worry she's not gonna have any money for drugs in the future she's gonna be spending it all on reenactment <laughs> gear so beyond foam swords and flower crowns and rides on camels i did manage to pick up a couple of things for myself there's a little tent there from a company called garlic festival which has some really nice seasoning and spices that they sell and years ago, I picked up one called Garlic Garni, which is a great seasoning, goes on a lot of different things. And I was able to refill my supply. But at this Ren Fair, they also have a game store. It's right beside one of their main stages, so you could almost be in danger of looking past it. But thankfully, they have a giant size chessboard in front of it with giant chess pieces, which various times throughout the day, people will be playing. And they've got... A crazy amount of board games of all different types, role-playing game books as well, but they also have some period games. And so while there, I was able to pick up a pair of medieval dice, which when you look at them, they look like they could be carved bone. When you pick them up, you realize, nope, that's not bone, but by the look of them, they look like they could have come out of somebody's, some 14th century soldier's kit. But now that you put it that way, I think I do want dice that are carved from the bones of my enemies. Mm, Sounds great, doesn't it? (laughs) And I was also able to pick up a pack of reproduction 16th century French playing cards. Ooh. These things are very cool. The deck is based on a set of face cards by Pierre Maréchal of Rouen, France, dating to 1567. And they are printed out on some very thick, very stout cardstock. They've got an aged look to them. Very well done. I was very pleased. And for only six bucks, yeah, I need to have these. And anytime I get a chance to get something period and a chance to play a period game with other people at an SCA event, I'll take that chance every time. Makes sense. So fun day at the Ren Fair. Uh, we had some other friends who asked us if we would want to go to the uh, Texas Renaissance Festival with them that's down in Houston. That one takes place in the fall. Yeah, I've never been down to that one. It could be fun. We talked about like going down, getting a cabin, and going to it together. But my only stipulation is going to be that we uh, go in the later fall because early fall in Texas doesn't exist. It's just (laughs) summer maintained 
it may technically be fall, but it's still going to be 100 degrees outside. So, yeah, no. I think that Ren Fair goes through till like mid to late November. That may be when we're going. But other than the Ren Fair, speaking of medieval things, I've been playing a little bit more of Kingdom Come Deliverance. Not as much as I'd like to because that's not a game that you can just sit down and play for 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. You've, you've got to sit yourself down and lock yourself in for a good hour or two to really get in. And plus the way that they have made saving the game where you have to drink a bottle of specific alcohol, which is called save your schnapps. And Jeez. that's the only way. You, well, you can save by doing that and you can get more of the saving potion by buying it or crafting it and i have not learned how to craft it because my character still can't read and (laughs) or you can uh sleep yeah i do not like that i've bought it on your recommendation and i i really don't like the notion of a save mechanism that costs you resources It, Mm -hmm. it just feels so wrong to me i'm with you on that but i'm not gonna let that one point ruin the rest of the game for me because I still. But I'm also the person it. who, in Skyrim, will be walking around with 300 health potions without realizing, wow, I have not drunk any of these. <laughs> like, have I saved? I saved. Five minutes late. Did I, I save? I should save again. Why, why do I not have any room for any, any more gear? Oh, because I've got 300 pounds of potions. <laughs> and 57 pounds of alchemical ingredients. Mm. Wow, I have that many flower petals and butterfly wings. I should, <laughs> should really use these. I should start pluck, stop plucking the wings off of every butterfly I see, maybe. See, I just started playing uh, Breath of the Wild because I've got issues with my joints, so my hands can't always operate a controller for any period of time. And I watched very carefully as my wife and children were playing. I'm like, okay, swords break, weapons get damaged. You can only use them a certain number of times. So I'm going to rethink and really carefully work through how I'm going to strategize how I use weapons on enemies. And so with that in mind, I found what I thought was the most powerful weapon at the beginning of the game, which is a big iron door. As soon as you get Magnesis, you can just lift that sucker high into the air, put it out in front of you and kind of sneak up on enemy camps and just drop that thing on them and flatten them without <laughs> nice. ever using your weapon. Nice. Like, I, I went full-scale Looney Tunes on that game. <laughs> <laughs> but but that concept or that idea of a weapons or equipment's durability going down over time, that's included in Kingdom Come Deliverance. I discovered that after, at one point, I had sold off some stuff I had found, and I bought myself, like, a nice gambeson. School, make me look better. I got into a fight with a nobleman's son. He challenged me to a, a sparring match. Everyone else would call it a sparring match, but he wants to humiliate me with a sword. I made the mistake of wearing the gambeson. It was destroyed. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I looked at it in my menu, and I'm like, and its durability was like zero. It was just, and it looked horrible. I'm like, well, that was stupid of me. And we all know how much Under Armour costs. Yeah, I'm like, why did I wear my best piece of clothing in a fight? Uh, you should have pulled a Van Damme and taken off your shirt, huh? Yes, done the splits. He would have ran. Um, <laughs> but the other reason why I haven't had much time to play Kingdom Come Deliverance is because I bought a new book. And it's one that was just released recently by author K.J. Parker. It's called 16 Ways to Defend a Walled City. Ooh. I have been enjoying it. It took a little while 
to kind of understand some of what was going on because this is the latest book in a series of books written in an established world. So he doesn't really spend a whole lot of time explaining things about here's the world, here's the people, these are what the terms are. So sometimes a place or a people would be referred to, and I'm like, I have no idea what any of this means. Oh, so it's fiction. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm I'm less interested when 16 Ways to Defend a Walled City is fiction than when it's nonfiction. Sorry. I, I, that says more about me than it does the book. But for being a work <laughs> of fiction, it actually, you could tell the author did some homework about how to actually defend a walled city. Because the main character whose responsibility it falls upon to defend this city is a corporal in an engineering unit. So he actually knows what he's doing, for the most part. Working within the bureaucracy and being a part of a military, actually doesn't have a clue about. But, you know, he can build stuff real well. The main character really reminds me of the main character from the from the Jureg books by Stephen Brust. Oh, Vlad Taltos? Vlad Taltos, yes. And a very similar world as well. Humans are kind of second-class citizens to another humanoid race who are the masters. The main character named Orhan, he is very technically gifted, a great mind, and is also very clever. And falls to him to figure out a way of surviving when no one else, even the supposedly superior species, can't figure out what to do. But it's been a fun read. It's named 16 Ways to Defend a Walled City, and it addresses that as at one point, he comes across a book that say, there are 15 ways to defend a walled city. If you have soldiers, supplies, weapons, equipment, and uh, resources to use. If you don't have any of that, there's a 16th way of doing it. Is it called surrender? <laughs> no, it's called faking it. You know, it's funny. I, I think that on the History of Byzantium, podcast they they described that last way in a couple of times uh in byzantium's history somebody had actually persuaded an invading army to burn all of their provisions in order to secure a better position like now, they that's had, impressive they had, <laughs> yeah right well what it is is that they had said that well my city's having difficulty time holding out but they're not ready to surrender because they're not sufficiently afraid. They, they don't think that you're going to invade. So if you show them that you're serious, it'll scare the people enough, and I'll be able to persuade everybody that they should <laughs> surrender. And so, yeah, so the guy burned all of his provisions, and then his messenger sent a message back to Constantinople and was like, okay, so we burned our provisions. Uh, so what about the surrender now? And so... Byzantium sent back a letter that basically said, LOL. <laughs> <laughs> but I would recommend the book. I might check out some of his other works in this universe because now I am curious about what else he's done with it. But I am enjoying 16 Ways to Defend a Walled City right now. I ended up buying another book not long after that because it was on sale in the, uh, in the Kindle store. And that was Star Wars from a Certain Point of View. Who's that by? It's by Ben Acker, Renee Adhi, Tom Engelberger, Ben Blacker, Jeffrey Brown, Ray Carson, Adam Christopher, Zoraida Cordova, Delilah S. Dawson, Kelly Sue DeConnick, Paul Dini, Ian Dosher, Ashley Eckstein, Matt Fraction, Alexander Freed. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. Well, you sold me at Ben Acker and Ben Blacker. Yeah. Basically, it is a story from characters, short stories about various characters throughout the Star Wars universe. 
One story is going to look at Captain Antilles. Another one's going to look at Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, Biggs Darklighter, and many, many more. These are all going to be considered part of the Disney's in canon. And from some of the story descriptions, and especially some of the authors that were listed, I'm looking forward to it. I think it was mentioned in a book that I was going to mention in my geek out. But continue. We'll get there. Gotcha. So uh, I'll probably get to start to reading this within the next week or two, and uh, I'll be able to talk about it more in the next Geek Out. Um, I finally did get a chance to go see Shazam. Yay! That was so much fun. DC needs to be focusing on that and Wonder Woman as a way of doing things. I've heard great things about uh, Aquaman 2. I just haven't seen it yet. But that needs to be the direction they go in, in my opinion, if they want to keep their cinematic universe alive. Well, and the interesting thing about both of those movies is that they're not actually superhero movies. They're movies in another genre with superheroes in them. Like Wonder Woman was a war movie. Yes. And you get halfway through it, and she comes out of the trench, and you're like, what the heck is going on? You're like, oh, yeah, this is a superhero movie. I forgot. That's exactly the reaction I had up until that moment. Because we (laughs) we talked about that with each other. And... uh, Shazam is the same way. It's a movie about family. And the fact that you have a superhero in it is a framing mechanism for a good family story. Mm-hmm. By the Aquaman, way, Aquaman, that... on the other hand, was just a superhero movie. Yeah. <laughs> a visually breathtaking one, from what I've heard, but also a superhero movie. Yeah, it fell a little flat for me on the story side. And they did this, like, uh, video game go on a quest to find these things sort of thing that made it too long and took the focus away from what would have been a really interesting kind of like political drama. It's like, oh, no, political dramas are boring. Let's uh, go on a quest instead. And a note to all of our Geek at Arms listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, go to our webpage, uh, geekatarms.com, and check out the blog post that Brian wrote about Shazam, about family, and about adoption. It was very well written, and yeah, it's something that, I think everyone needs to read. Well, thank you. That's a good piece. Yeah. So the last thing I will talk about on my Geek Out is I got a chance to do some stress-free research, which is something that I found that I enjoy now that I'm not having to do it for a grade. <laughs> you know, when you do it in high school and college and other times, it's... It's there's always there's always a bit of stress behind it because, you know, you're, you're doing it on a clock for a grade. But I found that I actually enjoy the research process when it's something that I'm very interested about and I have the time to do it. I don't have a lot of time these days, but when I do get a chance to do research, I really enjoy it. And I got thinking the other day and I will go through how I reached this question in my mind. Um, I was thinking about the movie A Knight's Tale. And there's, oh, a, yeah. uh, you know, never, never That's a good a, use of your time. Exactly. Good. Just ended there. <laughs> but there's a scene where Sir Ulrich's uh, party, his his group, they're in France and they're all in a bar and they're making a bet on the outcome of the next joust with some Frenchmen. And they're talking about, you know, it's it's so much money and, you know, I could do this. But if we win, I could I could do more. I could. I could open my own tavern. I could have my own forge. I could write. And one of their group is like, no, no, you know what? There's a lot of Frenchmen who could win this. Someone else could win it. We don't know what's going to happen. And meanwhile, the French are taunting them. They're like, 
French ground is too unsteady for English legs, and French wine is too much for English bellies. And finally, they throw out the coup de gras. They say, Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries? <laughs> almost. Almost that word for word. But no, what they said was, and most importantly, because the Pope is French. And our English friends stand there looking shocked until the one who is hesitant says, well, the Pope may be French, but Jesus was English. <laughs> and while I laugh at that, it got me thinking, are there people out there, and I know there are, throughout the ages, who thought Jesus spoke English? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've met some. And that got me wondering if anyone has, even after reading the, the words of Jesus, ever wondered what language Jesus spoke or what languages Jesus spoke. And I got to thinking, was Jesus a polyglot? What, did he speak more than one language? And that almost said, certainly. Of course, almost certainly. But that got me wondering, what languages did he speak? Or what languages might he have spoke? Because until we can ask him ourselves, we're, it's speculation. And then when we do ask, we're like, does anybody have a translator for these guys? What are they saying? <laughs> <laughs> They're talking all weird. We're going to get there, and I'm going to be. Thought about that. It's going to be a kick in the eye as we go to Jesus. He turns to us and says, "Bonjour." <laughs> it's like, look, if you're if you guys are going to make the trouble to go to heaven, you guys need to learn the language. <laughs> <laughs> How does one speak divine? So I'll go through this quickly. After doing a bit of research, and thankfully there are many people before me who have researched this subject already. Can I put bets down on my assumptions before you give us the real answer? Go ahead. Go ahead. Like Aramaic, that's the easy one. Um, I would bet that he would also have to be able to at least read, if not speak, Hebrew. Because he was teaching in the temple, certainly. You guys are totally taking the gusto out of my geek out now. (laughs) Just by talking to each other, you're you're taking it all out. (laughs) All right, then fine. I'm I'm going to to end with Swahili and Russian. Okay, Okay. you go. You were correct. He did speak Aramaic. It's pretty much widely agreed upon by many sources that Aramaic had been spoken since Babylon came through and pretty much ate up everything. Since the invasion of Alexander the Great, Greek, there were many communities in and throughout Jerusalem and in Nazareth and more of, a, of people who spoke Greek, and that's been documented. And if we look through the various Gospels where Jesus goes before Pilate, for reference, uh, Luke chapter 23, he and the Sanhedrin are before Pilate, the Roman governor, and they are talking back and forth. He even says Pilate asks many questions of Jesus, and sometimes Jesus didn't respond, sometimes he did. Nowhere does it mention anywhere that there was a translator. I would imagine that Pilate, being the local governor, probably spoke Aramaic. Yeah, at least Aramaic. Latin would have been his first language as a Roman official. Aramaic, probably. Greek, most definitely. But that there was a shared language which they could speak back and forth to each other. I mean, no reason for us to even consider that he knew any Hebrew at all. Honestly, it's been documented in various places. He really didn't like the Hebrews that much. Actually, he was even, not long after Jesus' death, he was recalled to Rome because of his treatment of the Jews. So we've got Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. Yeah, because in Luke chapter 4, 
or he is in the temple, and he is teaching. Verse uh, 16 and 17. He came to the village of Nazareth, his boy had home. He went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scrolls of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He enrolled the scrolls and found the place where it was written. So, and my wife agreed with me on this. She's like, well, yeah, he would have been, he would have been taught it as a boy. And uh, are there more that he might have known? Possibly. He may have had a spattering of Egyptian. Yeah, they did spend time there. Although yeah. he was likely pretty young by the time they came back, assuming mm-hmm. that the timeline that we have is accurate, which is a pretty big assumption. Yeah. His father was a tradesman. He worked as a tradesman with his father, and tradesmen meet people of various places. So those three, probably for definite, and maybe more. Well, that does make me wonder what language was actually being spoken in Egypt at that time. Because I think because by then, the, what we yeah, do is you classical already Egyptian have the was dead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That was there was a lot of a lot of Greek speaking and I mean, this is the thing about the Greek world is that I mean the Hellenization of that entire area created quite a bit of, of ability for communication and language. Uh the I'm not do you know what? I, I'm not gonna go there right now. You can go ahead and delete that. <laughs> Just, yeah, so. Greek was, was probably a big thing in Egypt at that time. Okay, I can't stop myself. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool things. Um, If you go to the museum in Cairo, which I was very happy to have done, the amount of Greek mummification that was happening there, like the people that were interred in these casks were very much depicted as very, very Greek. Even though they were Egyptian, the language, the style, the... I mean, heck, even the hairdos were, mm-hmm. were really, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's yeah. fascinating around this Absolutely time. right. And, and in places where, like, the culture of Greek didn't dominate, I mean, you could tell its influence was felt. And at the time of Jesus, Greek was being used as, an, as a language of international commerce and trade. It was spoken and spread all over the map. Well, I mean, you want to talk about the extent of the Greek language. The next time you use the word polytechnic, you know, you just think of Greek right then and there. <laughs> And that, ladies and gentlemen, is geeking out. (laughs) (laughs) So, that has been mine. What about you guys? I'll go next. Uh, Well, as you mentioned, uh, Shazam, excellent movie, and I did write that article. I also wanted to go ahead and amplify my brother-in-law and sister's uh, ministry, Hope Fostered, which is working to equip churches to help foster parents and the foster system in the ways that they need to be helped and not necessarily in the way that Christians think that they need to be helped. And that's a honestly a really huge divide. And something that I've had to learn myself as I watch her interact with her, her foster kids and realizing everything that I know about children doesn't apply here because these yeah. are kids who have had trauma. Well, and, and Christian Christian outreach tends to lean paternalistic unless it's by individuals who are really in touch with what's going on. So mm-hmm. I am very glad to hear that this ministry has it set on what it's set on. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to amplify that a little bit. Beyond Shazam and obviously uh, the Avengers, which I saw yesterday and will not talk about because I can't do so without saying things that James doesn't want to hear. You're a good friend <laughs> and you will remain to be one. So thank you, you for doing you... that. Can you at least tell us in vagaries how you liked it? I enjoyed it quite a lot. There was one little technical story detail that is driving me crazy even now. 
and someday in the distant future I'll discuss what that is. But for now, I'll just say it's driving me crazy. But yeah, is it because Thanos movie? tried to tried to play Go with the Infinity Stones? <laughs> well, it was marbles, but yes. Okay, uh, I knew it. <laughs> I'd already had that spoiled online for me. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it was a it was a fitting capstone to the end of the the saga. I will say, if you want to hang around to the very end of the credits, there is something there, but it's not anything that's going to enlighten you, and you won't really miss having missed it. So you can go ahead and get up after you see the first post-credits thing. Uh, speaking of post-credits, I did enjoy, and I don't think I'll be spoiling Shazam for anyone that's been out for a while now, that post-credits scene, the lunchroom one, that was mm-hmm. delightful. <laughs> Mike, have you seen it? I have not been to the theater in months. I've, okay. I've, my life is too complex right now. Oh, I haven't even tried it then. All right. So continue, please. Uh, so beyond those, um, I've been... Greatly enjoying my rewatch of Cowboy Bebop. Yes. Uh, I was invited. I don't remember if I mentioned this on the last podcast or not, but I was invited by uh, Retro Rewind. Retro Rewind. That's hard to say. It is. <laughs> the Retro Rewind podcast to come on and uh, talk about Cowboy Bebop. So I gave them my predictions about how I thought I was it was going to be based on my recollections. And now I'm rewatching it and finding out how how off my recollections were. So yeah, that's, that's, kind of that's been fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great show. Uh, anybody who hasn't watched it, if you, it's like Firefly with jazz. Oh, the music on that show is so good. Oh, it's so good. And it's a, it's is really there a way to watch that streaming. Uh, it. I imagine if you've got a Crunchyroll subscription, you could get it through that. Um, I just went ahead and I... bought the whole season on Amazon, and I'm streaming it from there. But it's not on Prime, unfortunately. Cool. It's available on Hulu. Aha. Ooh. In both dub and subtitled. The dub on Cowboy Bebop is quite good. The voice acting is is top notch. Um, Agreed. I've only seen the dubbed version. Yeah, and the uh, I think I watched at least a couple episodes subbed um, the first time I saw it. And I've said this before, but I don't generally like subbed anime just because I want to have my eyes on the artwork. And having to constantly be looking down at the screen to find out what people are saying is is distracting to me. So I do prefer a dub, as long as it's decent. And uh, Bebop's is is a very good dub. And now, in lieu of any more geek out on my side, I have a question for you guys. Okay. Sure. Favorite mouse movie? Huh. Favorite mouse movie. Um, I don't know about favorite, but I... I really think that Disney's Cinderella just needs to be retitled Random Mouse Crap. But, <laughs> I mean, Secret of Nim is where I'm going. That's also my choice. So, when you said mouse, my first thought wasn't a movie, but it was the British cartoon Danger Mouse. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, would I just that. started trying to rewatch that. I made it seven minutes. <laughs> it is it is kind of tough. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was fantastic back in the day, but absolutely. But I tried to do the same, and I, it was a little hard. But no lying, when I was a kid, it was the best. Yes. So I guess the next question is: We've got our wait. Did you name your favorite yet, James? Or is Danger Mouse, what you're sticking with? Um, for a TV show, Danger Mouse. For movie, I'm also going to go with Secret of Nim. Okay. Followed closely by Ratatouille. Also a solid choice. So why do you ask? 
I don't know. It's just one of those things. It's an an icebreaker <laughs> I use sometimes. I've realized you know, I have. I've never asked those guys what their favorite mouse movie was. And it's something that all, everybody always says, stops and says, huh, I could give you my reasons for Secret of Nim. And one of the things that I think is, is really important about it is uh, that strong female protagonist mm-hmm. who at no point in the movie is she motivated by wanting to have a relationship with somebody. I think that we need to have a Secret of Nim day. That needs to be part of our film club. Because I've got so many good things to say about the art in that film and the way that they shot it. It was For somebody who's not a VFX person and who's not an animator, I pay attention to a lot of these details. And <laughs> Actually, it's, Mike, it's that's amazing. a fantastic idea because we've done a trio of science fiction movies, a trio of fantasy movies. Let's do a trio of animated movies. Good idea. And we are definitely going to put Secret of Nim in there. I'll tell you what I would like my favorite anime mouse movie to be, because after Danger Mouse, this is what I thought of next. But I wish there was a movie adaptation of Redwall. There oh, I would like been, to see that. There has been an animated TV series that was that was on Netflix for a while, and it was okay. I was not aware of that. Neither was I. Yeah. It, do you know what? If they could do to that what they did to Secret of Kells, then... I would watch that film. I don't see. I shouldn't say what they did to Secret of Cows, but with Secret of Cows. Uh huh. I don't see it on Netflix anymore, so they must have taken it off, which is a bummer. That was years ago. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I can find it on Prime. Anyway. Yeah. Brian, did that wrap you up? Ah, uh, yes, I believe it did. Cool. Mike, what about you, good sir? Off animated this time because it's it's been long enough now. I think I can say it with it being you know spoiler free. I just watched the wrap-up of Steven Universe last night, and oh, man, was it good. I mean, a little rushed, but it was good. Are, are you guys aware of Steven Universe? I am aware of it. I have heard the name. And I, I know a little bit of what it's about, but I haven't watched an episode. Okay. Quick pray see for you guys and your listeners and our listeners. Uh, what you have is a young boy named Steven Universe. Uh, he's just a typical growing up in a beach city uh, with a magical mother jewel in his belly and uh, five alien gems that are raising him. So, you know, standard setup for the story. Um, and <laughs> Oh, that old uh, tale again? Yeah. I mean, and they, you know, the, on the surface, they're just fighting off all of the, the threats to beach city in the universe that seem to pop up, usually in the form of weird alien beasts that also are somehow centered on these jewels. But the story really grows uh, in, in its really real human experience, human emotional struggles. And Stephen is just this virtuous kid who isn't extremely powerful. He does have some superpowers, but he's discovering them as the show is going along. But it's about his growth, not only in his powers, but his growth as a human being and the growth that he promotes in those that are raising him. And why I say that this is really genuinely uh, real in a, in a human emotional level is the most frightened I ever was when a character was threatened, not that they were going to be killed, not that they were going to be, you know, their jewel was going to be shattered and, and done away with forever. But there was a moment where 
one of the characters was being invited back into an abusive relationship. And that was the most scared I ever was. Because, mm-hmm. first of all, it's kind of cheap to make the the audience feel something by threatening to kill a character. Like, if you have to go to that level, then people don't care about your characters if you have to kill them in order to get them to care. But if there is something that is a real mechanic in human dynamics, and that is what's really meaningful, then I think that says something about your storytelling. And I think that the storytelling really hit hit a nerve that I really appreciate when the big overarching major threat wasn't something to be fought and defeated, but somebody to be talked to and turned. That this is a a story of the redemptive power of this person's love, their ability to protect their friends by being able to have an emotional resonance and get somebody to see a perspective and then take all this damage that's being done and turn it to good. And that, and that really is a powerful story. So well, that's I, I like redemption. My recommended list. Yeah. After hearing you talk about it like this, I'm going to definitely have to give this a try. So solid recommendation for Steven Universe. Um, anything else? Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of other things. I want to spend real briefly on uh, a game called Batman the Animated Series, Gotham Under Siege. Uh, mm. A friend of mine brought this over. He had four painted minis, which he painted himself, set those out, and set up a three-dimensional Gotham City right there on our table and said, okay, here are the rules. And I'm like, okay, I don't care if the rules are awful. This game is great because, (laughs) number one, I'm Batman, which I wish I reminded everybody several times during the gameplay. (laughs) Gaja, but Gaja, what? Gaja, what? I'm Batman. (laughs) Um, Yes, (laughs) almost exactly. Yeah, uh, what it does is it utilizes a dice pool mechanic to activate a card with special abilities or using your dice pool to to place your dice uh, to defeat goons, foil plots of the supervillains from the series. It consists of four acts, and as each act is resolved, a new supervillain comes out to threaten Gotham's buildings and its population. Each time you fail something, either Gotham suffers casualties or buildings explode or both. And the game has amazing table presence. But also know that the game is pretty dang hard. You have a card full of special abilities, and if you are not paying attention to every single one, you're probably going to lose. Have you guys ever been playing a game and you thought, oh, shoot, I should have activated that ability last round? Yes. Yes. Yeah, don't do not do that in this game. You you activate it. Like, don't do the, oh, shoot, you activate it or, or things are going to explode. <laughs> and when we were playing it, my wife and I were like, I, we were just reminded so much of our friend AJ that we're like, okay, I think that we have we have to buy this. We haven't seen AJ in a couple of years. Um, we miss AJ. We're buying this game for AJ. And then it just so happened to turn out to be his birthday. So we're like, happy birthday. This is a random present. We <laughs> thought of you so much. We bought this game for you. So recommendation enough that I bought it for somebody else with barely even talking to them about it. 
And again, table presence on this is just unreal. Very cool. I'll send pics for the show notes. Awesome. Um, and the last big item that I have on my geek out is I just finished, as I alluded to earlier, uh, Bill Slavic's book, Defining a Galaxy. Uh, this is a memoir written by somebody who was there in the early days when West End Games got the Star Wars license. And this is the first time there was any sort of large product about Star Wars that wasn't, uh, that wasn't a toy geared for kids. So basically at this point, 10 years after Return of the Jedi had been out, actually probably wasn't that long. It was, it was long enough after Return of the Jedi had been over and done for. West End Games got the idea to do a Star Wars role-playing game. And to do that, you need sort of world-building source books, character backgrounds, ships, things of that sort. The, the Star Wars universe comes very lived in and used and beaten up already. And so how was it used? You know, how did it get beat up? And why do these things look ancient? Where did all this come from? Is stuff that you kind of need when you're, when you're going to be running a campaign, uh, unless you're just going to reenact the movies all over again. And then in that case, snooze. Uh, so <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, I, I love the Star Wars sausage, and I love how it gets to, to read about how it gets made. And this is the how it gets made. It's the behind the scenes, um, kind of a making of documentary, so to speak, about somebody who was there when, they were putting down the stuff that would eventually become the the expanded universe. And so some of their struggles with Lucasfilm and some of the things that they, they drew from in order to create the Star Wars universe that we actually see held up in canon even, even now. Some of it Legends, some of it Disney-fied, but still very much, very much a part of the Star Wars universe. And one thing that was really cool for me is since the Star Wars role-playing game, the, the D6 crowd is still a small and kind of tight-knit group. I got to see some of the things that were going on behind what he was saying. And, for example, there was, there was a section where he said, I got an email from a blogger from Malaysia. And though it never named him, as soon as I read that, I'm like, I know who that is. That's Hyrule Hisham. And it was so great because I'm familiar with this guy's other work, both in the D6 communities and his fantastic artwork that has been deployed elsewhere in the role-playing world, that it was really satisfying seeing somebody who I'd collaborated with in the pages of the book, even if he, he wasn't named. But he's named on the podcast, so, you know, it counts now. <laughs> so uh, Bill Slavicsek was responsible for many pieces of the Star Wars universe in general and the Star Wars role-playing game specifically, which occupies such a big place in my heart and on my bookshelf and in my game cabinet uh, that it was it was a wonderful way to live vicariously through through his work so I loved the book and Mike I'm gonna, here, I'm gonna ask you for a link for that or that you message me the name of that because that sounds incredibly interesting to me as much of a Star Wars fanboy as I am that's right up my alley yeah you would you would like it James you really would and just seeing how they got to got to fill out the stuff that was part of your your source book, like digging through the Lucasfilm archives, and so much of that that they never expected would grow to the the place that it did. So, yeah, I'm in danger of rambling, but I will definitely get you the <laughs> link on that. Thank you. Um, 
And while we're here in the Star Wars RPG realm, can I brag on my players just a little bit for my, my current Star Wars campaign? It is required. Of course. This I, I've mentioned it several times in passing on the podcast that we've got this group of players. We've got my two daughters who are now in their teen years. We have my wife. We have a brand spanking new role player. Never did a campaign before and another player. And sometimes it's been a bit of a struggle because you have all sorts of dynamics of, well, I don't understand how this works. And then you have family dynamics, which are really big at the table. And because you don't always know how am I to be a co-player and a parent or how to be a GM and a parent, because you kind of default into parenting mode. And how to kind of pull those things apart is not always easy. But this last session, it went brilliantly. When we, we shuffled with seating arrangements that were working better, we had some awesome player dynamics and awesome family dynamics where everybody participated. We had people who were able to pull back and give space for other people to participate fully as well. So nobody sort of fought for, I want to be the main character. We all got to collaborate together. And there was a wonderful shared experience where two of our players were making a 2D roll, like a two, two six-sided dice roll, and had activated the exploding six mechanism. And after watching their looks of surprise and joy of rolling a 23 and 26 on two dice. Wow. <laughs> on a bureaucracy roll of all things. And they were able to use the knowledge that they had remembered from reading the dossier, so to speak. And they came up with a plan of their own in the next adventure. They're, they're calling you know, they're calling themselves Heist at the Space DMV. So just happy that they came up with their with their own plan to basically raid the boss network to steal information that they need to continue their work as rebel spies. So it was great to see them all working together so well. Man, that's like the GM's wish come true. Like it took a lot of work to get people there, but I think that we set a good that we set the stage right to to keep it going well. Be honest, you were more proud right then of your players than many times than you were proud of your children as a parent. Um, the thing is, like, it's it's also column A and column B because there's <laughs> real parenting things happening. You know, there's there's real things where you're proud of your kids for working with things that you know that are personally difficult for them. And some of those social mechanics come into play when you're at a role-playing table. And so it really is column A and column B right there. So, yeah, definitely. And that's what I have for Geek Out. Well, I think that will wrap up our Geek Out, and that will lead us back to the film club. This time around, we'll be taking a look at the 1958 special effects extravaganza, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Now, of course, this one had directors and well-known actors of the day, but the main name, which gets talked about whenever this movie is mentioned, is Harryhausen. I mean, for good reason. For absolutely good reason. So uh, Ray Harryhausen was just, he's kind of like the, the grandfather of special effects. I mean, I, I don't think it's saying too much to say that he did for special effects in its time what Star Wars did for us in 1977. I mean, is that is that saying too much? 
Uh, well, it's not saying enough, maybe, because Star Wars was largely built on Harryhausen's work. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So, he, yeah, Harryhausen was able to make the quantum leaps that, I mean, he, he had seen King Kong. He had been inspired by the film tricks of the 1920s, but he, man, just created these childhood memories. And I, before we get into the discussion of this film, like I, I went into this like I normally do in terms of let's try to evaluate this film with a critical eye. Let's try to take a step back from the film and see the techniques and we'll see if we can identify. And then all that got swallowed up in, oh, dude, look out, the Cyclops right behind you. He's going to get you. (laughs) I I was right there with you, Mike. I really was. The last time I saw this movie was decades ago when I was a kid and it showed up on TV and it drew me in. And I, I took no notes for this whatsoever. I meant to. My purpose was to take notes of various parts of the movie. But as soon as it started, I was just having too much fun. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this film. I've never seen it. So it was, I was expecting to come into a dated film, kind of like when we did with the Forbidden Planet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was expecting to get kind of caught up in the 1950s pacing. But while it was a little slow, I, I was really enjoying this film. So. I think that Brian had a really good structure to his notes. So why don't why don't we just kind of hand the helm over to him yep. and see if he can start us off with our first questions. All right. Well, um, I guess the first question that I had uh, wanted to address in my notes was what's important about this film specifically? Why do, why do we want to talk about this one? Besides the fact it was the first feature film using stop motion animation effects to be shot in, in color? Well... And that's a you go ahead, Brian. that's a, a certain point of uh, significance, but that alone, I mean, we'd had stop motion animation and color was coming along. And so that was kind of inevitable. Uh, yeah. It was going to happen one way or another. I don't think seventh voyage necessarily is the, the catalyst for it. I mean, I can, I can t- tell you a little bit about my own thoughts. Lead the way. Show us where you're going. I hadn't seen any of the Sinbad movies, this one or any of the others growing up, but it is representative of a certain class of old-time adventure movies that I, I do remember enjoying. Things like Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of the Titans, also Harryhausen Pictures, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, TV shows Land of the Lost and Battlestar Galactica. They're all similar in style or execution, and I, I really loved those. Even though I had never seen Seventh Voyage, it was immediately familiar to me. Because it had those same visual motifs, um, the same storytelling style. And I don't know if it's necessarily itself significant within the context of adventure films or film craft, um, with the exception of the animation techniques, which we'll get to in a little bit, I'm sure. And we probably won't be able to get Mike to stop talking about it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think it's... It's an example of the foundation on which later movies were, were built. Like I said a few moments ago, the Star Wars trilogy extended some of these same animation concepts forward. And in spite of the fact that it is, is a movie from the 50s, the pacing is actually pretty snappy in comparison to uh, contemporary pictures. I was surprised at how fast this movie moved from, there was a lot from scene in to it. scene. Yeah. Some stuff I thought maybe this doesn't need to be in it, but there was a lot in it. 
other thoughts on that question? Why why Seventh Voyage? I mean, I think the fact that it is representative of so many of these other films that were childhood favorites make it easy for me to bring in. Like, I'd never seen this film, so I couldn't say, uh, well, sell this to me. I mean, I, or I couldn't say to myself, well, I, I know how I'm going to sell this to the two of you, but you also didn't need to sell it to me because I was familiar with Harryhausen's work that this does make a wonderful representation of films that were important to me in my childhood uh, in terms of, I mean, Clash of the Titans being one of the biggest, but some of the filmmaking techniques used here were actually were actually cannibalized in order to make Clash of the Titans. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you can't get more representative than that. Yeah. For me, sometimes all a movie needs to be justified is the fact that it's a fun adventure, and that's what this was to me. I talked a little bit in the last movie, Will, how much of an honest movie it was. And Seventh Voyage of Sinbad reminded me a little bit of that. It tries to be a, a fast-paced fantasy adventure movie, and that's exactly what it is. If you want to get into deeper meanings, I think it delves a little bit into the dangers of greed and avarice and disloyalty. But beyond that, it's, it is what it says on the tin. And it's, it is what it says on the tin in a number of different ways, because it, it did pull from the, from the voyages of Sinbad. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get back to the Arabian Nights, I'm not sure that it actually pulled from the seventh voyage, but even Harryhausen was aware of that and said, no, nah, seven is just a more epic, mystical number. So we're going to use that. And he pulled from several of several of Sinbad's adventures to pull this together and elsewhere in the Arabian Nights. So it and a little bit of Homer. Yeah. Well, yes, though, didn't the original voyages of Sinbad pull from Homer? I mean, we're talking about right. That's true. <laughs> the original Arabian Nights were written in about the uh, were writ- written in the 800s. This edition of Sinbad doesn't show up until sometimes the 16th and 1700s. And really, the Arabic-speaking world was where the classical Greek sources were kept alive in many more real ways than they were in the West. So, yeah, I think that him pulling, pulling from Homer in ways that the Arabian Nights did not still was true to the source material. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that, if that makes sense. It's true to the spirit because of how it pulled from, from where it did. Right. I don't think, I don't think a truly faithful uh, recreation of any of, of the Arabian Nights really actually works that well in, in modern or in pre-modern, if we call the 1950s, whatever we want to call that, that form of storytelling. So I think mixing and matching, blending them together, pulling bits of the things that you like and putting it in there to make a, a good, coherent, adventuresome story, I don't think that's a problem at all. I know there are purists who say, well, it doesn't adhere to the source material. Uh, who cares? If it makes a good movie, then that's what's important. Yeah. I think that probably some of our biggest problems as viewers is that we expect that we've seen the movie. Now we're, orig- we're, we're familiar with the original source material. I think, I think that's a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. So then the, the next question is, uh, where does this fit in terms of the fantasy genre? What does it contribute to? And we talked a little about what it contributed to it. Well, I think that exactly what contributed to it is what it contributes to the fantasy genre. I mean, 
fantasy has grown out of fairy tales. Fantasy grows out of myth. And this is just another um, mythological representation of an adventure tale. It fits along with fairy tale and myth, which is what contemporary fantasy is really founded on. Let's take a look at some of the fantasy elements that are present within the movie. There is a evil wizard who can command a dragon. There is a group of brave sailors who fight off a giant cyclops. There is a princess, a, a small, tiny, shrunken princess who longs to be restored to her normal self. And a brave, heroic, pirate-ish captain who is the lead of all of this, who seeks to protect his home and to marry the beautiful damsel. There's a gather crust for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think it's interesting if we're talking about influences on other other materials and this kind of pastor effect of getting these ideas from their source material into the fantasy genres or uh, kind of collective consciousness of it. In this little series that we're doing, we've got two other fantasy movies. Willow, which we've got the little people, the brownies, and I, w I want to talk a little bit about that in the technical things. So that was kind of an echo, like, oh, wait, we just saw this when we watched Willow. And then we have this idea of the, the princess being transformed and the quest to get her untransformed, which is an awful lot of what Lady Hawk is about. So even selecting these three almost random movies, both which, of the other movies that we've got are, are echoing this one. Which I should know for our listeners, Lady Hawk will be the third movie in our film club that we will be discussing. And I haven't seen it yet, so spoilers, dude. I mean, come on. It just came out in, like, what, the 19... I don't well, know. Read the jacket. I think you'll get that much from that. <laughs> I refuse. I'm, I go into films blind. I And I refuse I to surprised. not give stories about what's on the cover. All he knows is that there's a lady and that there's a hawk. And he's angry he knows that much. Too much, dude. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> Yet another podcast derailed by Mike. <laughs> right. I'm sorry, Brian. Please continue. <laughs> Did anybody else have anything else to say on that particular topic? No, sir. Okay, let's move on into the film craft then. And this is where I do want to talk a lot more about Harryhausen and that uh, mm -hmm. Dynamotion animation technique. <laughs> so, Mike, I know you were pretty excited about researching the Dynamotion animation technique would you care to describe that for us i will do as best i can because as soon as they said dynamotion i'm like okay this is obviously a big deal since you're presenting it at the beginning of the film so what is this thing and it took me a few blogs for this whole thing to really click and it appeared that the big technological problem they had had prior to that is being able to put stop motion animation and live action film in the same shot that usually they did the cutaway that we're used to seeing that there's some sort of effect and then we cut to somebody's reaction and then you do something that implies whatever the stop motion creature in the shot well uh, that wasn't good enough for what Harryhausen wanted to do he wanted somebody to throw a javelin right at the cyclops and more and more uh, so what it appears that they did is they took they took footage of a background. And once they had footage of that background, they would project that onto a rear projection screen 
in which they would basically build a diorama where they could act out all of the stop motion footage. Uh, the blocking for that already kind of blows my mind. Uh, but in addition to having this diorama, they would have a sheet of glass in front of the diorama and paint part of it black. And so while they were filming what was going on inside this diorama with the rear projected background footage, the section that was painted black wouldn't get exposed. So what you could do is basically reverse that and film your live action components, which is have a sheet of glass that is blacking out everything but that one little sliver that wasn't blacked out in the previous run through of the footage and then film your live action scene on top of this film that you've already mostly exposed doing your stop motion diorama. Did did I get close here? Uh, yeah, that's pretty much the basics of it. The advantage that you have doing this is, well, first of all, the disadvantage is that you still have the problem of actors who can't see what it is they're fighting. And in most cases, you would think that that would be a problem. In this particular one, the fight choreography for like the mutiny was so awful. Like watching Sinbad like move his hand to somebody is like this is you know punch him. Don't just like put your hand on him and then he falls down. So the the human on human fight choreography was just ah uh, it was it was cringeworthy. It was atrocious. It was Star Trek, uh, Star Trek the original series level bad. <sighs> yeah, where was the karate? All, William all Shatner was, was a karate was, chop. William Shatner was you know an artist in comparison to what they were doing here. And it's like, it's just, it looked like they just assumed that they knew how fight choreography worked. And so they didn't need to spend any time doing that. Yeah. But when you got to the fight with the skeleton, all of a sudden the moves are, are, are working and it's like, Oh, this looks planned. This looks like somebody's actually sword fighting here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was kind of ironic to me that he can't see the skeleton. He's, he's waving his sword around at nothing, but then they took that footage and they, they did the rear projection and the animator Harryhausen is looking through the camera lens at his model, which is in front of this projected screen. And so he sees where the sword is and he can move the, the skeleton shield in order to block it. And he can move the skeleton sword in order to hit what it needs to hit. And they just do that well, you know, frame by frame. They freeze it, move it a little bit. Not only, not only that, but the, but the fight choreography for the sword fight was painstaking. Like they rehearsed mm-hmm. that and rehearsed that and rehearsed that until they took his his opponent out and then said, okay, now just instead of hitting a shield, pull your shots. And somehow, I mean, it looks convincing because pulling a shot will look like pulling a shot most of the time. But I don't know whether they just blocked it so well that, that the animation was in the way of the things that were obvious pulled shots. But it, I mean, it was, it was a good fight scene. I should mention that. I have a good friend of mine in the SCA who I've talked about at length with you guys. In the SCA, he's known as Godwin. Uh, in real life, he's Michael. When I told him that we were going to be discussing the seventh voyage of Sinbad in our next podcast, he got very happy. He is a Ray Harryhausen aficionado. He has been a lover and a fan of Harryhausen's work for decades. And as soon as I told him what we were going to be doing... I said, do you have anything interesting you could tell me, any little tidbits? And he just started rattling them off to me. One of the ones that was the most interesting was that the swordmaster that trained Sinbad, Kerwin Matthews, this is the same swordmaster that would go on to train David Prowse and Alec Guinness. No way. Yup. 
Well, that all makes sense. <laughs> so where what where was I on that? Okay, so you've, you you and you shoot the animation, and then you got your your mat, and this was the same technique that's been used since uh, 1907 or something for mat paintings, that masking off part of the shot, and then putting something else into it on a second exposure. They had that since the first time somebody flew a bicycle over Paris. <laughs> Literally the first time that was used. Right. And in, in this particular case, most of the time they were just putting another piece of scenery in front um, so that they didn't have to build the entire miniature set. But there were at least a couple of situations in which they did the traveling mat thing where you had the characters able to move in front of an animated, like the, the dragon, when uh, Sinbad and Parisa move in front of it. And that was shot with uh, the typical blue screen procedure that they did and then optically composited, uh, which that, strictly speaking, isn't the dynam dynamation process or dynamotion, rather. In dynamotion, your, your foreground is actually static uh, with the mat, the painted mat. But even here, I mean, I think the only previous dynamotion process movie had been that uh, 20,000 fathoms deep or something like that. So already this is just the second film this has been used on, and he's already pushing it forward further than he had been before. Quick question. Especially is, because... is it Dynamotion or Dynamation? Because what I'm seeing online everywhere is saying Dynamation. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's Dynamation. That's the first time I have it in my notes is with an A. Okay. Just, just a pedantic question. <laughs> uh, not that it really matters because uh, I think anybody who sees the movie is going to see it in the first the first title and then, shot then with know. dynamation but we we see this same uh rear projection i it's still being used now we had really a, a, yeah we had a shot for teen wolf that was taking place the shot in the story it was in london obviously they didn't take the entire teen wolf production to london to shoot this one shot uh but they just had a giant led screen behind the actor out the window and there's london on it that sounds like it'd be so much cheaper than trying to do it in post well, you'd think so, except that they didn't have a good shot of London, and so we did that oh, as no. CG. <laughs> so we did a oh we God. did a CG matte painting of London so that they could put it on an LED screen behind the actor on the day of the shoot. <laughs> but uh, you see that all the time in uh, movies from the 70s and 80s. Whenever you have somebody in a car, and they've got the you know stuff going by in the background, that's just a rear projection screen that's being shot at the same time as the actors. They don't do that very often nowadays. Most of the time, it's that's green screen, but you still see it's still done occasionally. I mentioned the the miniature Parisa a little while ago in comparison to Willow's brownies, mm -hmm. and there was only one little moment where the surface that Parisa was standing on was moving when Sinbad was hoisting her up to the to the roof of the the cage, and she did a much better job of looking like she was standing on an unstable surface than those guys in Willow did. Yes. Speaking of standing on an unstable surface, there's there's one there's one scene where the blocking of, of the shots really made me feel like it didn't work quite so well. It's when she was letting them out of the cage, and so she's pushing on the peg to release the trap door, and almost no time passes, and he just pops that that. Yes, that I was thinking the exact same thing. Oh, gosh, Parisa. You hear the she goes well, sailing off into the distance. And the thing that bugged me about that scene right before that is he's giving her instructions. You have to help us get out of here. And he's got his head 
and both shoulders outside the cage. Yeah, <laughs> I noticed that, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let it go because if those bars are any closer together, we're not going to be able to see what's going on in there. Yeah, it's like, um, I don't think this is a problem, dude. <laughs> if we're really going to start questioning the reality of this movie, uh, we're going to go down that rabbit hole hard. Oh, like how uh, in the first shot of the ship, it was a single-masted lateen rig, and in every subsequent shot, it had three masts and square rigging? Yes. <laughs> or the fact well, is, if this wizard could command a fire-breathing dragon to do his bidding, why, why was he having those wheels? Yeah, why was he having so much trouble with a single cyclops? <laughs> I mean, this is the thing is do you want to risk your dragon or other guys sailors? I mean, that's clear to me. Well, I think if the end result is a magic lamp, then you do what you got to do. Was it uh arrows cost money, the dead cost nothing? Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And especially when you're not even designing, you're not even paying for the giant ballista. Somebody else is is paying for that. So I mean, it's, I think he's got beyond oh, beyond. Oh. A, but he kind of falls into all of that. Those circumstances are forced upon him. This is a guy who has a giant underground castle, who can literally take a lady and a snake and make a four armed snake lady, who can shrink something, can shrink a normal person. To GI Joe size, I mean, why not I'm, perform I'm, I'm, that I'm, trick on the Cyclops? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's because the Cyclops doesn't sleep with a candle next to him. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that we don't want to think about the narrative too hard. Just, <laughs> just, yeah. just go. Oh my God, it's the Cyclops! Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Although my critical mind went completely out the window when the skeleton dropped down because I was too busy going, oh, that was cool. <laughs> I would say that this was done even better than it was in Jason and the Argonauts. I rewatched that scene. This was the first. It was. This was the first. And the popularity of this skeleton fight scene inspired the Jason and the Argonauts one. He's like, let's make it bigger. But sometimes bigger isn't always better. But this was definitely the better fight. Mm -hmm. Well, again, when we go back to the fight choreography and the actors not being able to see the skeletons and Jason and the Argonauts, that really fell down. All right, just wave them around, guys, and try not to hurt yourselves. <laughs> or others. Or others. <laughs> I was like, I was remember there's, there was one guy who was just like, oh, I'm going to swing my sword. Swing the sword. And you can just feel Harryhausen and his animated skeleton saying, how do I make this look dangerous? Because that guy does not look like he's fighting anything. <laughs> have you ever looked at the background of what's going on in Braveheart? Uh, I don't think yeah, I ever you have. Don't, yeah, you don't, don't, do you don't need to do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> okay, so do we have any other major points that we want to cover about this film? Well, we could talk about the characters a little bit. Why is it that anybody at all trusted Sakura? Okay, he performed magic. He transformed uh, Sadi into the snake woman. He made his prophecy. The princess mysteriously turns tiny, and everybody, nobody thinks, maybe that guy did it. You see, my yeah, first that... reaction would be, find the magician. Yeah, hang him upside down by his ankles. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was the thing that kind of got me as, yeah, when all of a sudden it seemed that the caliphs were turning against each other, like, wait a minute, why are you too angry at each other? Suddenly there's a magician that has been doing weird things. Why not? Let's Why ask not him. Put some pressure on him. Yeah. yeah, and this is the same guy who's like, "Oh, you could be a magician. You've done some weird, dubious stuff. Please tell us our future." <laughs> yeah, you you are bent on one thing and one thing only. You are clearly a reliable source. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like a big leap to assume that magic happened. Maybe the magician did it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> it, it was maybe just the three of us. <laughs> We say all this, but I'm sure if we were actually, you know, stuck into a situation like this, we would probably fail just as miserable. I, I prefer to think that I would fail in different ways. Like <laughs> I would probably get myself killed by the mutineers, but I think I would have identified the magician as the culprit. See, if they're going to fight like that, I know for a fact I can take the mutineers. <laughs> but first you have to give me a real sword and not something which looks like a underfed degenerate version of a scimitar well all of the real swords were actually still locked in the armory yeah i'm sorry <laughs> they had only the prop yeah, be, available yeah. when i was watching those little things I'm like is that supposed to be a scimitar or a shamshir i mean there's a scene sinbad is hacking away the cyclops legs and i'm like of course it's not working you're using a butter knife <laughs> i i a lot of times just try to ignore movie prop swords i mean there's there's a time that I just have to turn it off because otherwise I'm like, uh, you're obviously using chromed up aluminum and I'm, yeah. Which honestly, at that point, that's what they had. And given the amount of fight training they've probably had, that's probably what they should be using because, <laughs> yeah. you know, somebody could get hurt. So all in all, I would say that the fighting was pretty good other than that. That scene, the props were, you know, they were of their age. The costuming was of its age. The mm-hmm. the the modes of storytelling, they were of its age. I mean, I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one who found it cringeworthy. Like, well, I'm just a simple little woman. Why would you love me? Like, oh, oh yeah, well, <laughs> how's that oh. working out for you, 50s? How's that working out for you? Yeah. My ex-wife used that technique to ask me for compliments all the time, so uh... <laughs> I did like yeah. her a lot more as a tiny person than I did when she was regular sized. Wait, your your wife or Parisha? Parisha. Yeah. <laughs> like if you started if you start saying that you shrunk people on the podcast, this is getting dangerous. Yeah. For legal reasons, I am required to say <laughs> that I met Parisha. <laughs> okay. All right. Just making sure. <laughs> one thing i did enjoy that i didn't think about it at the time but later on i thought that's actually pretty good but that was the soundtrack now we talk about how the soundtrack can make or break a movie and i thought that the, the score for this one was, was i liked was it really for the good. first four bars because it sounded like bizet but when i heard those same four bars another 32 times just in a slightly different key it started to wear on me all Fair. right does anybody have any final closing thoughts on the film? Only that I think it's a fun movie. And I think anyone who's a fan of the origins of special effects and sword and sorcery movies should give it a watch. And never forget that Allah has many ways of dealing with hungry men. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that will wrap up Film Club for this episode. As we stated earlier, 
uh, not the next episode, but probably the one after, we will be giving a look at the 1980s fantasy movie Ladyhawk. But until then, we'll go to Mike, who will give us this episode's zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Okay, uh, this time around, uh, we are going to be investing in industrial ceiling fans. Because, you know, once you just go ahead and take those original blades off, put on some machete blades instead, and install them at pretty much every doorway, then only the penitent man shall pass. <laughs> you came up with the whole scenario just so you could use that line, didn't you? <laughs> Where do you think I got inspired by this plan, dude? <laughs> Can't argue with that. And it has the added benefit of keeping us all cool. <laughs> but the only downside to this is that there's not enough Scotch Guard in the world to save that front entryway rug <laughs> after this thing gets going. Well, and I think if you've got zombies on your front entryway rug to start with, that rug is done for. Fair point. And on that note, that will wrap it up for us this episode. I want to thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms, and on Twitter at armsgeek. And listen to us on iTunes and on Google Play. And once again, we say it almost every episode, but I want to encourage you all, if you're on iTunes, if you're on Google Play, give us a review. Let us know how we're doing. It also raises awareness of the podcast. It lets us be seen by more people, and it just all around helps us out. So drop those reviews. And from Brian, Mike, and James, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.